The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I'm always so excited to begin a new book of the Bible together, and I'm thrilled to begin Jonah with you this morning. And if you're using a pew Bible, turn to page 920. You'll want the Bible open so that you see where we are in the text. Pew Bible, page 920, or Jonah 1, in your copy of God's Word. The title of our first sermon from this book of the Bible is Running from God. And we'll see that in Jonah chapter 1. If you received a bulletin this morning, it has three movements of the text, the way I broke them down. But if you're a note taker, I think it'll be fairly easy to follow along with this passage this morning. Let's go ahead and get into it. Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. And at this point, if you're a reader who's not as familiar with the book as many of us are familiar with the book, but trying to step into hearing it for the first time, you assume, oh, great, God is calling a prophet. God does this all the time, and it works out well, normally. (laughs) God calls Isaiah. He calls Jeremiah. He calls prophets. They do what he tells them to do. And so surely you expect that to happen here. And that's why what follows is so unusual. The first thing that's unusual is in verse 2. And that is the audience he's told to go to. So verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now there are other prophets in the Old Testament who have made prophecies against God's enemies, but no one has ever been told to go to those people. So Jonah's in a totally unique situation. So we need to take a little bit of time to give some historical background that would have been familiar to Jonah so that we understand what he would have understood. Let's talk a little bit then about Nineveh. Nineveh is the great last grand city of the Assyrian Empire. It is the city in which Israel gave tribute when they had to pay Assyria for their overage. But notice in verse 2, God calls it a great city. And by that, he means its splendor and its significance here in the 8th century B.C. From the excavations we have, we know that, for example, Sennacherib's palace had two miles worth of carvings of his conquest. We also know that they had a 50-mile aqueduct. They have infrastructure and paved roads. They had public parks and civic centers. For the 8th century, this was a splendid place with hanging gardens. But God doesn't just call it a great city for its splendor and significance. Notice in verse 2, God said that its evil has come up before me. So how evil is Nineveh? How evil is Assyria? Well, I always hesitate to say such visceral things on a Sunday morning. But it is important that you understand what it was like. And our children, thankfully, are not in the room. So let me tell you what Assyria was like. Assyria was one of the most cruelest and violent crime terrorist states in the history of all empires and civilizations. Those carvings that were put for two miles in the center were carvings of conquest of gruesome depictions of the way they would defeat their enemies. One historian calls Assyrian history as gory and blood-curdling as any history we know. For example, when Assyrians killed their enemies, 
they would cut off both of their legs and one of their hands, and then they would shake the other hand while they were slowly dying. When Assyrians conquered people, they would decapitate their heads and then force their loved ones to carry their loved one's head on a pole through the city. Assyrians would skin people and then put the skin on the exterior wall of the city that they had conquered. They burned adolescents alive. Assyria has been called a terrorist state. We understand then why in verse 2 this is such an unusual call that God would send one of his prophets to such a place. Now, Jonah was, of course, introduced in verse 1, but he's given almost no introduction. So let me tell you who he is now. Sometimes in the Bible, when someone's given no introduction, it's because they've been introduced previously. Such was the case with Jonah. He's revealed in 2 Kings chapter 14. There, his role as a prophet is to help Jeroboam, and don't miss this, to expand Israel's boundaries and push away Assyria. So Jonah's previous role has been to work against evil regimes like Assyria. And here God tells him to go to them. To put it in contemporary terms, it would be like being told that God has called you to go to ISIS, which ironically is not stationed very far from Nineveh in Mosul, northern Iraq, and calling someone who's been known for opposing them previously. But you might say, but Josh, in verse 2, all Jonah is told to do is to call out against them. Surely that would be something that he'd be willing to do. Because after all, that must mean judgment. Well, we don't have to guess why Jonah didn't want to go. Because Jonah tells us. So I'm only going to make you flip once today. Will you flip to chapter 4? In chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Jonah tells us what he was thinking in chapter 1, what his motivation was there. We might think he didn't want to go to Nineveh because it would be so dangerous, but that is not the reason he did not want to go. And we don't need to speculate because he tells us the reason he did not want to go. Look in Jonah 4 and look in verse 2, please. Jonah 4, verse 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Thankfully, Jonah tells us. We don't have to guess. He didn't want to go because Jonah is upset that God is not only a God of justice, but God is also a God of mercy. This was the very reason he did not want to go, because he believed these people do not deserve such a response from such a God. Now flip back, if you would, to chapter 1. We'll spend the rest of the time there. Now perhaps you noticed from what we just read, Jonah was quoting the text we read together this morning. Exodus 34, 6 And seven, Jonah was throwing back at God the fact that he is merciful, which is something that at this moment really bothered him. But that text not only told us that God is merciful, but also that God is just. So let's first pause on that point. Here God has told Jonah to go to Nineveh because their evil has risen up against the Lord. So let me remind us of some things about God. God is the judge of all the earth. 
There is no corner of the globe that God is not aware of, and there is no person on earth that God is not tracking. God has kept track of Nineveh's sin, and he is aware of how much they have sinned. That tells us a third thing about God. Not only is he the judge of all the earth, and not only does he keep track of our sin, but he forbears for a long time. Nineveh has had a long, long time where God has not brought out judgment in front of them, but here he does. And so let's at least pause and note this this morning. God is the judge of all the earth. That means, friends, God is the judge of me and you. And that God does have a day of reckoning in which he calls all of us into account. Hebrews 9, verse 27, says this, Just as it is appointed for a person once to die, after this comes judgment. So this morning, it's vital that we understand that we have become comfortable and complacent with many things that God is not comfortable with. The city of Nineveh had become comfortable with its violence. Our cities today become comfortable with their violence, with adultery, with injustice, with hatred. But things that we start to become dull to, God remains sensitive to because God is holy. One author wrote this, Many people in the world today ignore God and assume that God also ignores us. Many people think God set the world in motion and then he just allows it to continue unnoticed. But this text portrays God as one who notices, God who is active, and God who takes sin seriously. But there is good news. Not only is a God a God who takes sin seriously, but God is also the God that Jonah feared and hated that he was. God is a God who offers mercy. I quoted Hebrews 9, 27, just as it appointed for a man once to die, and then after this comes judgment. But verse 28 says this, So Christ, having been offered once for the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So I have good news for you this morning. Not only is God a God who is holy and just, but God is a God who is merciful as well, and he has provided salvation from our sin through his son Jesus. So this morning, you don't need to be fearful of the judgment of God. Instead, when you know you are forgiven through faith in Christ, you can eagerly await the return of one who comes not as your judge, but comes as your rescuer. This morning, I want to make sure you know that you can come to Christ for the salvation that frees us from the judgment we deserve. Well, here, I would want to say something even further. The very fact that God is sending Jonah to go announce judgment is in and of itself grace. When God exposes to us that we are sinners, that is a mercy. Do not be upset when you learn that you need a savior. Be thrilled that you now know you can go to him and that you can be rescued. All right, so let's recap where we are. Verse one, a typical call to a prophet, but verse two, a very atypical audience for a prophet. But now verse three is scandalous. This is a prophet who is called. He's told to go to a challenging assignment, but he's a prodigal prophet. Verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. 
Other prophets have struggled with their call. Jeremiah really wrestles with the call God has given him. Moses equivocates about maybe God can send someone else who speaks better. But Jonah alone decides to go the exact opposite and furthest direction from what God has called him to do. Jonah is a prodigal prophet in defiant disobedience. And I want to show you from verse 3, three ways that show how serious he is at rejecting God. The first thing is he found a ship. Do you have any friends or relatives that hate flying? I've tried to get my mom and dad to fly down here. They won't. They don't like planes. Perhaps you know people like that. In the ancient Near East, here eight centuries before Christ, the Hebrews hated ships. They hated seafaring. If you've read the Psalms, you know there are all sorts of metaphors about the tumult and dangers of the sea. One commentator calls the Hebrews a people of the land. In other words, Jonah is so committed to disobeying God, he is willing to take risk of his own life. Not only does he want to get away from God, he wants to get away from God so badly. Look in verse 3 again. He went to Tarshish and he paid the fare. Two things about that are interesting. First, the cost. One Hebrew scholar writes, to flee God, Jonah must have sold his home and left everything he had. Commentators debate whether he paid just for his own fare or that he was the only traveler on the boat, which is probably true, that he paid the fare for the entire boat. In any case, it would have been exceedingly expensive for him to travel. And not only does he travel, he travels the exact opposite direction. God tells him to go east to Nineveh. He goes west to Tarshish, which is the foot of modern-day Spain, which in Jonah's day means he's traveling, if you will, to the end of the map, the end of the known world, not even knowing if the world is round. He wants to get as far away from God as possible. But verse 3, I like the way our translation puts it. It says twice he wants to flee from the presence of the Lord. You might be thinking, well, is he fleeing God or is he fleeing God's call? Is he fleeing God's presence or is he fleeing God's word? But friend, they're the same. They always are. To reject God's word is to reject God. The Bible unites such things. Think of John 1, which says, when God, the eternal son, became flesh, he was called the word who became flesh. To reject God's word is to reject God. And so a fair question for us now Here's Jonah running from God, and here's a question for us. Am I running from God's word? Am I running from God's love? I want you to notice that sin means disobeying God, and sin also then means pushing away God's presence. So sin means disobeying God's word, but it also always means pushing away God's presence. And by the way, sin is not defined by us. This text shows that Jonah does something perfectly legal and yet sinful. He pays the fare. He's not a stowaway. And yet he's disobeying God. We don't define sin. God defines sins and God sees the depth of our heart. The phrase translated away from the presence of the Lord here in Jonah 1 verse 3 is the same phrase in Genesis 4.16 to describe Cain when he rejected God's person. Running from God can take a lot of forms. It can look like Nineveh, a a city notorious for its wickedness, or it can look like Jonah, a respected prophet. It's not what we look like to others, but it's what God sees in our heart. 
Let me caution us then this morning. Sin is empty and fleeing God is futile. As David wrote in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? How could I get away? In fact, David presciently wrote in verse 9, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, behold, you are there, surely relevant for Jonah. But I want to encourage you, if you are running from God, I have great news for us all. God can reach you anywhere. You've not run past the reach of God, and you've not sinned beyond the grace of God. One of my greatest moments as a pastor happened a number of years ago when I had the joy of baptizing a man in his 70s who has since become a great friend of mine. And when he gave his baptismal testimony, here's what he said. He said, for 40 years, I've been trying to outrun God, but I didn't know he was a track star. It was such a great testimony and such a simple way of saying what this wonderful book teaches us. Friend, God can reach you anywhere. And no sin has put you beyond his grace. But Jonah 1, 1 through 3, sets up a conflict for us that the whole book will explore. Why does God care so much to send one of his own people to people who are so far from him in their, in their living? You have that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, why does one of God's prophets care so little about people that God cares so much about? This is the conflict of the book, and that leads to a question for you and I. Is there a wide discrepancy between God's saving heart and my unwilling heart? And Jonah will explore this. So let's see how God gives an initial answer in verses 4 and following. So now verse 4. We've already seen a sending God and a stubborn prophet. But now this sending God and this stubborn prophet interact with some sailors. Verse 4. This is number 2 on the handout, if you're using it. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. If you struggle with that, God sending a storm, I want you to notice by the end of chapter 1 that God even uses difficult trials for good purposes. So the Lord hurls the great wind upon the sea, and there is a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. Of course, these are seasoned Phoenician sailors. They don't get scared at sea very easily. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Notice the sailors are seeking a solution. First, they try a Rolodex of pagan gods to no avail. Then they try lightening the cargo, again, to no avail. Now the verse continues, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. If you're wondering, how in the world is Jonah asleep in the storm of the century? I think a good answer is this. If you've ever spent time running away from God and you're a believer, don't you know how heavy that weighs on you? It is wearying to try to hide from God. Verse 9, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. In other words, we're all trying ours. They're not working. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I want you to notice something very important here that shows us something key about sin. Sin is selfish. Jonah doesn't even care if everybody else dies. 
as long as he gets to disobey God. Friend, that's how sin always works. It calluses us to the collateral damage of our own lives and focuses only on the self-centered pursuits that we have. Here's Jonah, a prophet, around pagans who need the Lord he ostensibly represents. And his only presence is their peril, which he has no concern about. In fact, they have to wake him up. And they have to encourage him to call on God. And then they do something. That was common in the ancient Near East. They cast lots. If you're wondering what lots are, lots were normally stones or pebbles, and you would paint them on one side, and then you would roll them. If they come up with two colored, that means yes. If they come up with two that are not colored, that means no. And if they're split, it means roll again. So here they are, tossing to and fro on this ship, and they start rolling the lots. And look what happens in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Surely we see there that God is sovereign, and trying to run away from him is a bad idea. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And here we see Jonah being called into account by a God who is in control. So now verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? All questions that now Jonah is forced to answer. Verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You can imagine these sailors recognizing the truth of Jonah's claim here. I mean, Jonah admits that he's fleeing from God probably when he first purchases the ship. Now he further admits that he is someone who believes in a God, not like their gods that you can make with human hands, but a God who made everything, including the sea that is now raging. And Jonah is dead serious that that's the God that he can't escape. And they now pick up some of his fear. By the way, I love that even though Jonah is fleeing from God, the first words he says are true statements about God. God has sovereignly ordained even that. And this leads us to the third scene of this morning. We've gone from ascending God and a stubborn prophet to a sovereign God over shaking sailors. And now we see here in verses 11 through 6, though the prophet continues to resist the Lord, the sovereign Lord is compassionate on all. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them in verse 12, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. We wonder here what Jonah's thinking and what he's going through, but I think it is fair, given all the research we have in the preceding verses, that Jonah has resigned 
that he is so stubbornly defying God that he would rather die. I'll quote a couple authors. D.A. Carson writes, Jonah painfully recognizes there is no fleeing from God, and that is why he invites death. Daniel Timmer writes, Jonah's choice to go overboard rather than repent suggests that he would rather die than change course. And I think those authors are correct. Jonah is now resigned to just die because he'd rather do that than obey the Lord. And that causes me to have an opportunity to speak about something sensitively and carefully. Jonah here now is literally suicidal. And though I want to speak carefully and sensitively and compassionately, it's probably true that some of you in this room have yourself or know people who have attempted suicide. And I want you to notice God's grace in this book. Because Jonah's desire to die is not granted. Because God in his grace spares Jonah because of his love and purpose for him. Here's what I want us to notice. Sadly, one of the things that happens when we open the book of Jonah is we argue about the miracle of the fish, which is only three verses out of 48. And yet the whole reason the fish comes is because of a God who spares even a stubborn, fleeing prophet and gives him life. G. Campbell Morgan said this about the book of Jonah. Men have looked so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Let us not do that this morning. Here's how gracious and good God is. Even Jonah is preserved by God's miraculous grace. Now, the sailors, commendably, they actually want to do the right by Jonah. So look in verse 13. These are Phoenician pagan sailors. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They they don't want him to die, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. You'll notice a change in language. Earlier, they were using lowercase g, God, any God. Now they're using, it doesn't come across in English, but they're using the name Yahweh. The very name Jonah said, that's the true God, the one who made the sea. Now they're calling out to him, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. What a heart-pulsing section. I'm one of those people that has a very vivid, Imagination. I feel badly about how vivid my imagination is. My wife is like, Josh, can we save up money and go to Europe? And I'm like, I've read about it. So I feel like I've been there, <laughs> you know, uh, which is, I need to grow in that. Um, what we have here, though, is so vivid for me. I can smell the salt water. I can feel the wind. I can imagine it crashing against them as they're trying to get to shore. But then can't you hear the birds chirping when the sea immediately goes placid? I mean, here they are. Who is this Jonah? But even more so, who is this Lord that is in control of everything? Verse 16 then makes much better sense. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Do you see how gracious God is? God has spared the life of a suicidal, stubborn prophet as he has spared many of ours. 
God has saved the lives of sailors in the midst of a storm that they could not overcome. You see, this is the theme that we're going to see all through the book. God is much more gracious than even his people are sometimes willing for him to be. See, this book shows us a God who is better than we deserve. Now, I want to be as sympathetic to Jonah as I can and to you and I as I can. To be fair to Jonah, most scholars think that the prophet Nahum prophesied before Jonah. Nahum's a short little book, three chapters, and they're all about God's judgment against Nineveh and against Assyria. And interestingly, in in Nahum 1, verse 3, Nahum also quotes Exodus 34, 6, and 7. But he quotes the latter part, that God by no means will clear the guilty. And surely Jonah is struggling with this exact tension. God is supposed to judge sin. But friend, let me remind us of something very important. God is all of God all the time. God is holy and love. God is justice and mercy. God is all of God all the time. You can't pick the side you like and separate it from the other. You see, God hates sin. And at the same time, God is willing to save the worst of sinners. I had a great testimony of this last Sunday. Last Sunday, we had Liam Garvey here from Edinburgh, Scotland. And over lunch at the great American restaurant, El Rodeo, (laughs) uh, I asked him his salvation testimony. And Liam shared it. And I mean, it was so wonderful. And I got to tell you, when someone shares biblical truth with a Scottish accent, it's like six times more true, right? (laughs) So we're at lunch, and I asked him how he came to know the Lord. And as he's sharing the testimony, it was remarkable. I wish all of you could have heard it. I mean, Liam's whole life was fleeing from God, living as wantonly and sinfully as someone possibly can. Eventually at university, there was a girl who wasn't like him. She didn't swear. She didn't drink. She spent time sitting with people who nobody else wanted to spend any time with. And Liam wanted to know why this girl was so great. So he asked her out. And she said, no, you have to come to church. (laughs) And he didn't want to do that. So she said, well, there's this Friday thing where college students get together, which was sort of a sneaky way to invite him to what was essentially a church service for college students. And he heard the gospel, and he heard it, and he heard it, and he heard it. And here's the moment when it clicked. He heard the preacher talk about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And here's what caused it to click for Liam. Jesus knows he's about to experience something. He has never experienced the feeling of sin. And sin is so disgusting that Jesus recoils from it to the point of sweating drops of blood. And Liam said, I knew that's how disgusting my sin was. But then Jesus doesn't simply recoil. He climbs the hill of Calvary because he loves sinners that much. And that's when it clicked for Liam. God is not just a God who hates sin. God is a God who loves and saves the worst of sinners like me. See, the good news for you and I this morning is unlike Jonah, the greater prophet Jesus didn't try to run away, but ran towards the most sinful of sin, all our sin, placed on his body. So here this morning, God hates sin 
much more than we do. But also God is much more willing to save sinners than even we are. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to make an offering for guilt. That's how much God hates sin. But Jesus said this before telling the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, verse 7. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who think they need no repentance. God is a God of both. My first question for you this morning is, have you received the salvation that God's obedient son went to the cross to procure for you. Jonah appears to jump off the boat, to be hurled off the boat in resignation. But Jesus went to the cross willingly in love. And he did that for you. I want to tell you some true stories about sailors who have received salvation. The first story is about James Harvey, who is my wife's grandfather. I called my mother-in-law on the phone to clarify some details this week. James Harvey was raised in a non-Christian home, and he hated it there. And when he got older, he ran away from home. And he lied about his age so that he could join the United States Navy at the age 17. And when he joined the U.S. Navy, not a Christian, didn't really know what that meant. There were two missions that he was supposed to be sent on, And in both of those naval missions, he somehow did not end up on the mission. And in both missions, every other United States Naval Service person was killed. Then he was stationed in Pearl Harbor the day it was bombed. After surviving these three things, he finally retired from the Navy early. He had only been in for five years. He went back to Wyoming, which is where he was from. And he, too, met a girl that seemed to be different. Again, she told him to go to church. He went to church. He heard about a God who saves. He put his faith in such God. He became a Christian. He didn't know what I do next. The girl said, go get theological training. He went to South Carolina to get theological training. He met a different girl, Ruth, the girl he actually married, which is ironic. (laughs) After marrying her, he thought, what are you supposed to do when you become a Christian? I guess you have to go into ministry or go into the mission field. He went to Brazil. They had eight children in 10 years, a record we're not trying to break, by the the way. (laughs) Three of them were born in Brazil. One of them is my mother-in-law. James came back, and he spent his life as a missionary, as a pastor, as an Old Testament and Hebrew professor, most importantly, as my wife's grandfather. Let me tell you about another sailor who found salvation. His name is John Newton. He was born in 1725. When he was 11, he became a sailor because his father was a sea captain. John Newton spent his life on the sea doing horrible, horrible, wicked things. He drove boats where he human trafficked people into slavery. It was awful. On March 10th of 1748, he said this, The storm that came today was terrific. The ship was plunging into the trough of the sea. Few were on board. I finally cried out, If we will not survive, may the Lord have mercy on us. And then John Newton said this, Mercy? Why am I asking for mercy? I don't know what mercy is. 
About six in the evening, the hold was free from water, and then came a gleam of hope, and John Newton wrote, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed for grace, and I began to pray. I didn't even know how to utter the prayer of faith. I didn't feel like I could draw near to a reconciled God and call him my father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. The 10th day of March, Newton later said, is a day remembered by me for the rest of my life, and I have never allowed it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. For on that day, the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Of course, after that day, Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So let me ask you this morning, have you found the grace that those sailors found? Have you found the saving grace of God in Christ? But you might think, how do I get it? And that leads me to go back to the passage room. Because very, very smart people wrestle with what happened with these sailors in Jonah 1 verse 16. And I'm going to throw my much (laughs) cheaper two cents into the ring. All right, here are the three views. The first view is what I'll call the agnostic view. A number of evangelical commentaries, I could quote about six, all believe that they know for certain that you can't know for certain what happened with these sailors. I'll give an example. Smith and Page, their representative, here's what they wrote. While some would associate these actions on the part of the sailors with the true worship of Yahweh, it is not clear whether these mariners had a conversion experience. No doubt they became cognizant of the power of God and respected that power, but whether it went further than that, we do not know. This is a large view that we know for certain, we can't know for certain view. The second view is what I'll call an atheistic view. And these are evangelical scholars, but they believe for sure that these people did not get saved. Douglas Stewart is an example. He writes this, The fact that these sailors feared the Lord would hardly mean that the crew was converted to Yahwehism. Uh, He adds more, but that's essentially what he has to say. There's a third view. I think it's the right view. And that is, I don't know why we wouldn't recognize this as people simply putting faith in God in the way that we would expect people to do so in that time and place. I think there are strong reasons to believe this. Here are a few. Fear the Lord in verse 16 is the same Hebrew word as fear the Lord in verse 9, used by Jonah. Also tracing the fact that they go from lower case G to any God to going to Yahweh himself. Further, the fact that they promised to make vows was the most common way in that day and age to pledge your loyalty. I find it interesting historically that the Jewish Midrash all believed that these sailors were converted. I'll quote Daniel Timmer. I think he's helpful. He writes this, What the sailors have done can hardly be something less than wholehearted conversion to Yahweh. To fear God in the Old Testament consistently describes those who have an ongoing relationship with the Lord. Further, Timur adds, This conversion is the clearest instance of such a change in the entire book of Jonah. And to give you further reading, Psalm 115 Psalm 135 and Psalm 107 all use similar language to describe this sort of turning. Well, perhaps this morning you don't agree with me about the sailors, and that is okay. But more important than that, I do want to make sure we understand this. How is someone 
saved? And the answer to that question is so clear, but it's put so memorably and humorously that I almost showed you the YouTube video of Alistair Begg explaining it. But I'll do a worse job (laughs) telling you essentially what Alistair Begg had to say. Alistair Begg, in front of what looked like a pretty stoic and stuffy doctrinal audience, explained that God saved the thief on the cross. And he humorously contemplated what would that have looked like in heaven when they interview the thief on the cross and ask him, how are you here? What did you possibly do that you could end up here? I mean, a few hours ago, you're cursing out God's son. Your entire life has been one of criminality. You never properly joined a church or were baptized. How did you end up here? And then Beg humorously has supervisor angels come over and give him some examinations. They ask the thief on the cross if he knows what the doctrine of justification by faith is. He gives them a blank stare. (laughs) They ask the thief on the cross if he can explain the doctrine of scripture's infallibility and inerrancy. Again, a blank stare. Finally, in exasperation, they throw up in their hands and they say, well, then how are you here? And the thief on the cross beautifully says, Because the man in the middle cross said, I could come. See, the best news of the gospel is this. We are not saved because of something we do. We are saved because of what God has done. Never confuse that. Jesus said it is finished on the cross because he fully drank the cup of God's wrath And the peace that passed on the waters is the peace he promises to leave us never, but to guide us eternally home. So brothers and sisters, do not look at your life as the grounds of your salvation. Look at the accomplishment of Christ as the only hope of our salvation. He is our solid rock. Now for Christians this morning, I do have three applications for you. If you're a note taker, I'll give you three in parting. Number one, Christian, this is true for you and I, as it was true for Jonah. Christian, sin disobeys and distrusts God. And Christians, even you and I, are capable under much duress of distrusting and disobeying God. And I want to encourage you today to trust him again. Jonah thought that because he couldn't see any good reason for what God was doing, that there must not be a good reason for what God was doing. But perhaps you've had the same thought when you were in the doctor's office and you received that biopsy report. Or when you've looked for decent employment and the last option disappeared. Or when that perfect dating relationship somehow crashed and burned. And the only thing you can conclude then is, well, God must not know what he is doing. But I want you to see from Jonah, God knows exactly what he is doing. At all times. And if we start to think, does God know best or do we? The question itself puts us in a dangerous position. So friend, remember that sin disobeys and distrusts God. Trust him. Here's the second. Christian, repentance is not the same as remorseful resignation. Repentance is not the same as remorseful resignation. When Jonah admits that he's the reason for the storm, that is not repentance. That is just admission. Repentance is when you stop going the wrong direction 
and turn to God who is alone the right direction. Repentance is not merely admitting you're in the wrong. It's turning back to God. Acts 3, Peter says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back. And Peter, again, writes in 2 Peter 3, to invite us to turn back. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And a third and final application for Christians, one that we'll have to think through throughout the book of Jonah. Christian, do you long for God to use you to reach people, even people who are far from God? Did you know, Christian, that Jesus' commission to us is clearer than God's commission to Jonah? Jesus has told us to go to make disciples of every nation and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Jesus has promised he will be with us always. So is there anyone that you think, I don't want to go to them? They're too far. They're too gone. They're too problematic. Christian, let God clear the gap between his saving heart and our stubborn resistance. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, thank you for the book of Jonah and for its great clarity about your awareness of every human being that you have created. You are surely the God of all of us in that you are our creator and that we all stand before your sight. Lord, in one sense, we have to admit that's a little alarming because you know our thoughts and our attitudes and our affections and you will hold us into account and therefore we have a sin problem and we need a solution. And some of us have lived like the sailors. We're casting lots, we're trying everything and none of it's working. So praise God, there is a solution and his name is Jesus. So Father, I pray that perhaps someone today would realize why am I running when I can just run to the cross? when I can come to Jesus. And may they have the same assurance that the thief on the cross had. No, I didn't do anything, but Jesus said I could come. Now, Lord, as as Christians, perhaps this morning, you've convicted us that our heart is a little hard. It's not as soft as your heart is. It's not as willing to see people rescued, even those who seem so far from hope. Lord, send us again and cause us to say, Lord, here am I. Wherever you send me, I'll go. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.